Welcome everyone to episode 19 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew and I've got a crazy one for you guys today. Today's episode is about the suspected murder and disappearance of Carrie Culberson. And I've also got a few more stories from yourghoststory.com. So sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. This first story does feature domestic violence. I will try and keep any details to a minimum, but listener discretion is advised. Carrie Culberson was born January 31, 1974 in Blanchester, Ohio. Her mother would describe her as bub- bubbly and genuine. When she was 22 years old, she lived with her 15-year-old sister and her mother, and she also worked part-time as a nail technician. It was around this time that she would meet and start dating Vincent Doan in 1994. Her new boyfriend, Vincent, had some troubles of his own. When the two met, he had just gotten out of jail from shooting a friend in his face because it was rumored that his friend had slept with his girlfriend at the time. For some reason, the charges were dropped to a misdemeanor and he was released. Over the next few years, Carrie would suffer horrible violence at the hands of Vincent. There were many witnesses to the violence that she suffered. One witness was a friend and roommate that Carrie lived with in January of 1995. Carrie had received a telephone call from an unknown male, and Vincent secretly listened in on the conversation. After Carrie had hung up the phone, Vincent went into her bedroom and dragged her into the kitchen by her hair. Her roommate tried to stand up to Vincent and tell him that she's going to call the police. And he told her, quote, if you do, you'll be sorry. He then drug Carrie out of the apartment and she returned about 10 minutes later. When Carrie returned to the apartment, her roommate asked if she wanted her to call the police and Carrie declined, saying that that would just make things worse for her. Over the next few months, There were several witnesses to the physical abuse that Carrie suffered at the hands of Vincent. Then, on August 26, 1996, Carrie had gone out to dinner with Vincent. On their drive back, Vincent became angry about something and suddenly pulled the car over onto a rural road. He then pulled a gun out of the trunk of the car and proceeded to hold Carrie hostage there for the next five hours at gunpoint. She did her best to calm him down, 
beg him to let her go. She ended up promising that she would come to his house later that night if he would just let her go. Vincent finally agreed to this and let her leave. But that night, when he called for her to come over, she told him that she wasn't coming. He then told her that if she didn't come over, he would come over to her house and kill her and her whole family. The very next day, while telling a friend about it at a tanning salon, Vincent called the salon looking for her. He then showed up 10 minutes later and told her friend, I don't know why she needs to tan. We laid out all day yesterday. I'm still burnt. The next day, Carrie is at a volleyball game with some friends when Vincent shows up once again. Three of her friends all witnessed him shaking her in what appeared to be an argument between them. But then he left. Later that same night, Vincent showed up once again at a bar Carrie was at with the same friends from the volleyball game. They argued once more, and then he suddenly leaves. After leaving the bar that night, before being dropped off herself, she had her friend drive by Vincent's house two times to make sure that he was still at home. Once on the way to drop off another friend, and once more on the way to drop off Carrie. Vincent's car was in the driveway both times, but the main problem with this is Vincent only lived three blocks away from Carrie, so it wasn't a far walk for him at all. Not long after she was dropped off, a neighbor testified that she saw Carrie's car backing out of her driveway with the lights off. This is the time that Carrie's family believes that she was kidnapped because it doesn't make sense that she would be driving down the road with her headlights off. Around midnight, a neighbor on her street reported hearing what sounded like people shouting at each other. She went to her kitchen window and under the bright moonlight, she could clearly see Vincent chasing Carrie in her front yard and Carrie's car parked in the middle of the intersection. She could hear Carrie screaming, help me, before Vincent grabbed her spun her around and punched her in the face. He then yelled, quote, The next time, I told you I'd kill you, you fucking bitch. Upon hearing this, the neighbor went to wake up her husband, but when she returned to the window, they were gone. It's not until around 3 a.m. that Vincent is seen again. He went to his brother and sister-in-law's house and knocked on the door. His sister-in-law answered, and she would later testify that she could clearly see him with the porch light on. He was only wearing a pair of jeans, no shirt, shoes, or socks, and he had some blood smears on his arms and chest. He then asked to speak to his brother. After talking to his brother for a few minutes on the back porch, Vincent takes a shower, then him and his brother both leave together with a gun and several garbage bags. Vincent and his brother both return at around 6 a.m. The sister-in-law, Lori, would testify that both Vincent and his brother, Tracy, had blood on their clothes. Tracy then tells his wife to wash their clothes, and if anyone asks, she hasn't seen him since 2.30 a.m. Three days after Carrie goes missing, the police dogs finally get her sent and it leads them to the property of a family member of Vincent. It leads to a pond on the property, 
and this is where the police make their first big mistake. They plan to drain the pond the next day and call off the search for the night. But in doing so, they leave the pond unguarded for the night, and the next day, when they finally drain the pond, they find nothing. Leaving the pond unguarded left the perfect window for someone to possibly remove anything that they didn't want found. Nine days after Carrie's disappearance, more than 300 volunteers spent the weekend helping to look for Carrie and her car. The Culberson family offered a $10,000 reward for any information that would help find their missing daughter. To this day, Carrie's body and her car have not been found. Vincent was arrested and charged with the murder and kidnapping, and in 1997, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 1998, Vincent's brother was also charged evidence tampering and obstruction of justice, but he was released in 2005. This is one of those stories that I wish that I had more time to devote to. There is way more to this story that I've heard about, but I'm having trouble finding online. If anyone knows about anything that I left out, please share with me so I can update in a future episode. I'd also like to shout out the Murder Podcast. They were a big source of my information for this story and timeline. They are a podcast that is dedicated to sharing stories about domestic violence against women and helping to raise awareness for it. I'll leave a link in the episode description if you'd like to check out their website. Our next story is from YourGhostStories.com. It's about a young girl's encounter with a possible demonic spirit. I'll be reading from the author's perspective. October of 2002, I rented a trailer from a family member. One morning, my daughter, Jessica, who was 10 when we moved there, came to me and said, Mom, look at my back. It hurts. When I raised her shirt, I saw three thin scratches in the center of her back. They were raised, but not bleeding. They were just deep enough that they caused the blood to come to her skin. The scratches appeared to be pretty fresh, because the droplets of blood were still a bright red, not dark, and the scratches weren't scabbed. I asked Jessica what happened, and she said that she didn't know. She just woke up and realized that her back was burning. I realize a lot of people are going to question whether or not Jessica was into self-mutilation or if she had been abused. Neither of these are the case. Jessica and I actually had a pretty good relationship, so I don't think it was a malicious spirit brought about by negative emotions. So on with her story. Jessica was, and still is, a nail-biter. So even if she could have reached the center of her back, she didn't have any nails to have made the scratches herself. I asked her if there was anything in her bed, and she said, just the TV remote. I didn't t think too much about it at that time. I just let it go, figuring that there had to be a logical explanation for it. The second time she woke up with the scratches, again, in the middle of her back. I checked out her bed, bedding, her nightclothes, bra, 
everything that could have been in contact with her skin. I took the sheets off her bed, felt every inch of the mattress, expecting to find a staple or maybe a piece of that clear, hard thread that they used to sew the mattresses. I couldn't find anything that could make scratches on her. I told my mom and dad about the scratches, so my mom checked Jessica's mattress and she couldn't find anything either. I'm not sure how many times she woke up with scratches, but it was often enough that she'd come to me and say, I have scratches again, Mom. The scratches weren't always in the middle of her back. Sometimes they were on her arms, her legs, her thighs, sometimes more than one place. They weren't human fingernail scratches either. They were thin and closer together than a scratch human nails would create. To me, they looked exactly like a cat scratch. I don't want to create any misunderstanding here. This didn't happen every night. I don't think it happened more than a couple of dozen times while we lived there. It was just enough times that it seemed like it happened all the time. We did have a cat, but Jessica absolutely refused to let him in her room. Dobby irritated her, and she wouldn't let him sit on her lap, let alone sleep in her bed. Even if Dobby had been allowed to sleep with her, he would have had to have reached under Jessica's nightclothes and scratched her without her being aware of it. Jessica said she never felt anything scratch her. She only felt the scratches when she woke up. The entire time we lived in the trailer, this would happen. Jessica continued to wake up with scratches. They were never very deep, and they never bled. They were just raised scratches. But she never seemed to be afraid, just more like, what the heck? In the fall of 2005, we moved from that trailer into a house. When we moved into the house, Jessica continued to wake with these scratches. Naturally, I believed it had to be her mattress. Apparently, I just couldn't find what was causing the scratches. This turned out not to be the case. We moved again five months after moving into the house. I don't want to bore you with the details not related to this, but the guy that I rented from decided he wanted to move into the house. Anyway, we moved into another trailer and I bought Jessica a brand new bed. I did this for two reasons. Her bed was pretty old and because of the scratches. I honestly believed that it was her bed and thought this would solve that problem the scratches continued for the two years we lived there. We moved again in 2008. Another landlord decided that he, that she wanted to move back in, and the scratches haven't happened since then. The reason I mentioned moving so many times is because I want to make sure everyone understands that these scratches weren't related to where we lived, or the bed Jessica slept in. She still has the same bed I bought her new, and the scratches haven't happened in over a year. I don't have any idea what caused them to stop. All I know is one day my daughter mentioned the fact that she hadn't been scratched in a long time. I'm torn about demonic spirit stories. I find them so fascinating and terrifying at the same time. 
I love reading and watching movies about them, but I absolutely never want to encounter one myself. I feel so bad for anyone that does, but I also feel guilty because it makes for such a fascinating story. Now our final story is another haunted house story, possibly a home possessed by a demon. Once again, I will be reading from the author's perspective. I am 62 years old. The events occurred when I was 12 through 13. They were so dramatic and real that I remember them as if they just occurred. My large family was living in a house that was 103 years old at the time. My father was a violent, abusive, psychotic, and daily drug-using addict. I had two younger brothers and two older brothers. The oldest had moved out. My bedroom was upstairs and to the right. I tried to be in my room as much as possible to avoid my father's beatings, so I read a lot. I also had an aquarium and a chemistry set and a microscope. Anyway, paranormal things started happening almost right away. I never saw a ghost or a spirit, but I definitely felt its evil presence. Sometimes I would get up to leave its presence, and other times I would just get up to leave the room to go to school, and I would be stopped in my tracks. I literally could not take a step forward. I never felt hands grabbing me and holding me back, or standing in front of me, pushing me back. What I encountered was like a force field. You could not push against it like a wall. It was exactly like the sensation of trying to push two magnets together. There was just no way to progress against it. Instantly, it would fill me with such dread and such a strong feeling of absolute evil that it terrified me. This would sometimes last a few seconds and sometimes a few minutes. One time, after getting released by it, I started walking down the stairs. About halfway down, I started to float down the rest of the way, and it set me down gently. I was terrified by that. It was a school day, and cereal, bowls, and milk were set out on the near end of our long kitchen table. I went to reach for a bowl and it scooted two feet away from me. I tried again, and it did it again. I was finally able to make my cereal. That was the only time that anything manifested outside of my bedroom. Within a block of my house, on the same side of the street, were three funeral homes. I've often wondered if that was the cause of the problem. Whatever it was, it just felt evil, like demonic. Whether a religious person or not, strong, negative, hating evil. I was so glad to move away from that house. My youngest brother told me that when he was 10 and homesick, alone, that a seven foot lizard man that just felt evil manifested in his bedroom. He had waited 50 years to tell me this story for fear that I would not believe him but I do believe him. He is a type that would rather die than tell a lie. I have seen a few accounts of this force field type sensation on the popular paranormal shows 
and give the most credence to those stories. Well, that's going to do it for today. I hope everyone enjoyed the stories. If you did, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really goes a long way to helping others find this podcast. Also, please share with any friends and family that enjoy this kind of content. If you would like to help support the show, please consider joining the Ohio Unsolved Patreon. There are three tiers to choose from, and two bonus episodes up for the $5 and up tiers. The third bonus episode should be up by Monday. Don't forget to join us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram for any news before a new episode. Thank you all for listening, and don't forget to keep those doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.